Fuck pain, fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life. Headquarters of the future capital of the free thinking states of America known as Los Angeles. This is the Drunken Dows Podcast. Tonight, it's interview time again as Master Shaman Hamilton joins us with the amazing story of his spiritual calling that led him to the jungles of Peru, an 85 year old teacher, and 14 years of discovering the power of plant medicine, as well as feeling the flow of the planet. Astral visions, ayahuasca rituals, and years of interaction in spirit space with the ones that turn around. And now, asking you all to spread the words that corporations are not persons, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, the savage philosopher and middle finger of the gods, Daniele Bolelli. As we invite you to lower the lights, batten down the hatches, and prepare to open your mind. For the Drunken Dows Podcast begins now. Welcome back, everybody. Episode 69 of the Drunken Dows Podcast. I let that hang there for a second. I like that number. Is it because you forgot? You smoke too much weed? Is that what happened? I would or? never. I'd have to have smoke some weed for that to be a problem. Thank you very much. That has not happened. I see. This is, this is kind of a special episode. Oh, God, did you get out of junior high already? Well, this is easily one of my favorite numbers. Yeah, yeah, I figured. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people that learn to explore each other properly, this is episode 69. You seem oddly pleased with yourself. What, what a great invention this whole sex thing is. I really think it's going to catch on. It seems, you know, at least in my quarters and around the people I bump into day to day, very popular. On that note. Maybe even wildly popular. Yeah, I I, I can see investing in it should be a a good... uh, You couldn't go wrong. Yeah, I can see how that would make an out good. Trying to stop folks would probably be more difficult than keeping them from drinking, smoking weed, and smoking cigarettes at the same time. Can you imagine trying to... Like, if you explain it to somebody that does, like... He like comes a Martian. from a weird asexual world. Yes, it just makes no just sense seeds. whatsoever. It just like oh, you, so you, you do what? You stick what into what, and you just go back and forth, and it's fantastic. Oh, that makes no sense. Surely the insert E probably having a terrible time. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's a trip, man. It's That's... well designed. Yeah, if you're gonna get a species to procreate and continue it. What a what a great setup! Make the process enjoyable, indeed. So we might as well try to calm ourselves and find somebody to get us some ayahuasca. So in this, uh, yeah, uh, we swear we'll stick to our junior eye thing just for the beginning. The rest of the episode shall not. So before we get to Hamilton for a great chat, uh, quick thank you to Datsusara on it and Shore Design <laughs> on it. Be on it if you're 69 the three the three glorious ones who um who sponsor us which is a very sweet concept and uh, people that whose products we use all the time so it doesn't take much for us to say hey we we like this stuff because you know we actually use this stuff it's not something that is like 
What is that we have today? The guy who makes a uh, wart remover. No, it's not that. It's... He makes it. He mixes it up in his garage. He swears yeah. by it. If it doesn't remove the wart, it will dissolve your hand. Yeah, that's not so what Step right up, get you a jug. Yeah. So Sure Design is some, among the million great things they have. I saw some amazing uh, Jimi Hendrix and Bob Marley designs. So in addition to all the other happy hippie stuff, there were some very glorious Hendrix and Bob Marley were like two of the gods of my household. I now have a gigantic Hendrix poster in my house that makes me incredibly happy to every time I stare at it. So. We got one where he, when he plays the Ventura Fairgrounds, it's oh. a reprint of an old poster from like 68. Awesome. Yeah. And I went and re-listened in 1983 because the name didn't trigger to me which yeah. song oh, it was. But Beautiful. If you've listened to all four records, you've heard yeah. it all. Yeah. There's it's no awesome. there's no extra laying around. I mean, every once in a while, the crumb well, comes lives, out. The retake you know, and the live ones. Stuff that he never got to record God, uh, officially. What a genius. Absolutely. Nobody like him. I was reading somebody was like, oh, Hendrix was all right, but he wasn't as good as a guitarist. I'm like, shut up. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna shoot you over that right away. He was just stepping into it too. What a, if he had twenty more years of guitar. practice? A god with a guitar. Oh. But yeah, so sure design <laughs> has some glorious stuff in that department. Um onnit.com, I'm on an onnit binge lately. I'm consuming onnit product like there's no tomorrow. Aubrey has turned me into a full-on addict, so I'm fairly pleased that I'm hoping he never cuts me off because then I would be I would be very sad now that I've developed an Omnit addiction to at least, I probably use regularly anywhere between seven to eight products uh, when you add them all up between, so there's some cool stuff. Uh, Savannah got to try her, their ghee uh, made of bamboo. That was pretty cool. Oh, is so, it soft? Is, it sounds like it would be kind of crunchy, but it's not. Huh? No, no, no. There's uh, And again, the, yeah, this is funny. Like, that's Usara McGee's hemp made. Uh, on it, McGee's is like... And I love when they cooperate. Like, they have uh, Datsusara and Onnit cooperated on some bags. So they are Datsusara bags with the Onnit design and logo on, and they work together. So that's a cool concept. In any case... Without further ado, real quick, those of you guys who are interested in any of these products, check out the episode notes. There are discount codes in there, so you get a discount, and they know that you're actually listening and you're they are, you're hearing about them from us. That would be sweet. You know, our Kiva folks broke $25,000 in loans they've given out to Kiva in like a year and a half. Check that out. Look at that. That's a good job, everybody. Thank you very much. That's you, our listeners, and nobody else. So I invite everybody who hasn't tried it out to give it a look. You can help folks out around the world or in your own country. $25 to help somebody else with a loan is all it takes. And when the money comes back, you can lend it again. Kiva.org. Let's try to get to 50 grand by Christmas because a lot of those loans will come back. You'll be able to hand it out again. Beautiful. Um, Amazon link. If you shop on Amazon, please, please, please use our Amazon link because it doesn't cost you dime extra and it helps us a whole bunch. So without further ado, let's check what Hamilton's got to say because... I dig his story, and I think that everything that he brings to the table is awesome. Okay, guys, ready to roll with another episode. Today, here with Rich and I, Rich and me. How the hell do you say it in English? 
We'll have to look that up to make sure. My Harbury's handbook with is not me. with me. With me. Good. I with like Rich that better. That makes it easier. But Rich and I sounds nicer. Yeah. So. Sound refined. I don't remember. It's been a long time since I looked. Here we have Mr. Maestro Hamilton. Straight from, well, not straight from Iquitos now. Now you are, uh, you are back in the U.S., right? You are. Very true. Colorado. In Colorado, yeah, yeah, spending some time in Colorado. But you have been spending a big chunk of your life down in the Amazon. and um, 14 years. Damn, that's quite a bit. Most so, of my adult life. It's pretty funny. We were just, uh, I met Hamilton a few minutes ago. We were stopped up by at an Indian restaurant around the corner, and he was looking at the map and was telling me, oh, yeah, this is where I was uh, spending all this time. And the waiter jumped up and he's like, <gasps> I saw you in a documentary about ayahuasca, didn't I? I want to go, give me... I was like, damn, that's interesting. That's a globalization for you. It's uh, the the Indian waiter in LA who want to go to Iquitos to try ayahuasca with the white guy who's a shaman in a Peruvian tradition. I mean... What the fuck? <laughs> it's like that's that's uh, why we love LA, right yeah, there. That's globalization. Spicy, yeah, keeps it interesting. Yeah, it's so, like a chai latte. <laughs> <laughs> so do tell. I mean, for actually, before you do tell, the, um, I would recommend anybody who's checking out this podcast. If you want to check out, there are a couple of podcasts that Hamilton has done with Obri Marcos on the Warrior Poet podcast. I've been digging Warrior Poet lately a lot. There is uh, every single episode, there is always somebody cool on. Aubrey does a great job with it. I've been digging it a bunch. But aside from my tangent going off on the Warrior Poet in general, uh, Hamilton was on a couple of back-to-back episodes. So there's a lot about story of his life, things that happen, the whole deal that he goes into. And we're not going to make him repeat every single thing. So, you know, we're just going to give you the quick version of the bio who he is what's going on so that we can get to some other issues as well but for the sake of those who will not check out two episodes on the warrior poet please do tell uh your life story is to say the least rather unique so give us the highlights highlights uh simply Graduated from college, and then after that, found my way. Whoa, you graduated from college? That's crazy. Wow. Oh my God. No, sorry, that wasn't the crazy part. Yeah. We're going to get Yeah, to the but crazy I mean, part. it just, you know, and then literally the year after, ended up in the Amazon. Right, yeah. And in the Amazon. So I just, you know, give the college reference for age. So about 23 years old, living in the Amazon in a small remote community of eight families. Nothing out there other than trees and a few people and a lot of animals. But um, but we're giving you're giving us the PG thirteen version because what brought you to the Amazon? What brought me to you yeah. don't know what brought me to the Amazon? Yeah. Uh, a calling that came in the form of visions where I started to see what traditional people call spirits uh-huh. who said you're going to the Amazon and there are people down there who are going to train you to be an Amazonian shaman, <laughs> which is the kind of thing that yeah, if you are just done with college in your room hanging out and suddenly you see you actually see right just, oh yeah, yeah 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 full full on you know vision now if i looked at it, i would say well was i seeing them with my two eyes or my third eye was i seeing them in right. some other visionary reality i don't know but definitely sober state in the day seeing what other people would not have perceived right and gained an ability to communicate with those visions and then the visions sending me to peru which I went down to check out, obviously thinking that I might be um, making it up. Mm-hmm. Because it, 
too yeah. fanciful to even think sure. that it could be possible, like a prophetic vision leading to a life path. Yeah. Difficult to believe. Yeah. So for all the skeptics out there, I, I'm one of them. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Just know that I'm one of them too. Yeah. And, um, but I had, I had to find out if there was any truth behind it because if there were, then something magnificent was happening in my life. And if not, I needed to get help. Right. One yeah. way or the other, right? Yep. So I had to, I had to find out, you know, what's really going on. He could have been a demon hunter and not known it. <laughs> no, that seems fair because, oh god, oh, I just wanted any other psychedelic experiences before that point while you were in college. Just, uh, you know, very random dabbling, very, very random, very minimal, but really nothing like that. Nothing like anything anyone would already be preconceiving. So, spirit substantial or ethereal or ethereal? Um. Hard to describe exactly, other than that presence is knowing that I'm not alone in the room, knowing that other people aren't there, aberrations between me and something else, like a force maybe, uh, full-on prophetic 3D out-of-body dream experiences, and then also like direct communication as if watching TV in meditation, you know, straight 3D completely present as well as having before i ever went to peru other people that i randomly ran into confirm that they could also see the entities i was talking about which is the kind of thing that from uh, i like you know the way you put it is there's something to it in that case great some doors are opening for me to something magical and amazing or i'm making it up in which case yeah we got a problem here the standard model in Western uh, psychiatry is there's only one option is if you are seeing shit, it means you're crazy and we need to medicate you and do something because there is no option of no, there's something real about it. Right. The, the, the standard psychiatric model is if you go tell that to any psychiatrist, the idea is let's get you on the meds right away. Elf. Because mm, I would assume, yeah, you're saying you had a couple of doubts of going like, ooh, what's going on here? You know, am I, I, had am a lot I losing of it? Am I what's... I had a lot of doubts because yeah. I, I grew up in a Western medical scientific-based family. Right. And I had just graduated from school so it's you're at, you're at that age where you're looking for your own life but the only life you know is the life that you were presented as a child which was empirical science empirical science scientific method study but at the same time my father taught me the tremendous limitations in the knowledge base of western medicine mm -hmm. without any criticism of western medicine just saying that he showed me what they did well he showed me what they were trying to figure out and he showed me what they didn't know and so I really appreciate that, that what? he gave me that, that education. What was your dad's background? He was a surgeon. Surgeon. Okay. Mm -hmm. Got you. So you yeah, mother very... was a nurse. Father was a surgeon. So... You know, both studied science and throughout school. That, right. was, that was it. And so I wanted real. Yeah. I wanted real. I was definitely interested in the sci-fi version of modern reality, though. Mm -hmm. But I wanted it to be real. It's of course. Like, I didn't want to believe in Yoda. I wanted to hang out with Yoda. <laughs> right. You know, and I didn't want yeah. Yoda to be a space alien made up as part of a Hollywood film. I wanted Yoda to be a real human being. Right. And it just turned out that I met somebody who ended up teaching me that was very much akin to Yoda. So it all worked out. I mean, funny enough, you know, the story gets richer the deeper we get into the Amazon. So do tell about the Peruvian Yoda. You go down there and... Well, the Peruvian Yoda was named Julio Jerena Pinedo. He was one of the most renowned and respected medicine men slash shaman. Shaman's not really a term they use down there. Sure. They call it medico vegetalista, which means plant doctor. Right. And when you walk out of your backyard into the Amazon, you know, where you have 
billions of square miles of untouched forest. And where we lived, there were no inhabitants for six days overland. So it just it's just untouched forest, jaguar prints through the camp. You know, you're not sure if if you're going to be eaten in the middle of the night. You know, it gives you it sure. gives you like a real raw feeling for existence. You know, where you like pull a 24 foot anaconda out of the river and you're wrestling a giant snake that could eat you. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is like Tarzan stuff for real. And um, I had the, the honor of meeting Julio. Julio turned me down for apprenticeship in the, the first year because he said he was too old. He was already 85 when I met him. Yeah, I can see. And how. the rigors of apprenticeship can can take out not only the apprentice, but also the, the one who's training him, yeah. you know. And so uh, Julio actually said he was too old, but then a year later, it took it took a good year and a half before Julio accepted me. I was in a situation where um, Julio got sick, and the other healer from that area that was his prize student was off on a week-long hunting trip, so there was no one to heal him. And so instead of letting Julio die, I did. I jumped in having no idea what I was doing, which I do not recommend, but it was one of those true emergencies in a life-and-death situation. And I was able to conjure enough uh, connection and channel enough direction in the moment to be able to provide assistance. And I ended up healing Julio. And in exchange for that, Julio asked me what I wanted, like to pay me or whatever. And what I told him was that I wanted to learn. And so I, I knew at that point he was going to have to say yes yeah. out of honor, you know, yeah. like, I, like he's like, you oh, saved my no. life. And so yeah. I'm like, well, I want to I want to be taught, you yeah. know, yeah. 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 and uh and he was he was okay with that. He, he and Alberto got together, and then they agreed to teach me. And that's when the the story really kicks off. I mean, that's where if if already it sounds like too far to uh, to believe, just be a drunken Taoist at this point, <laughs> like fully and and go with it. Because once the real mystics of the forest got a hold of me and a hold of my brain and hold of my consciousness and psyche, it was off to the races. It was wild. Right. Like, the first thing, the first thing that I, I have to share is just a style of education. So in the West, you're thinking chalkboards, blackboards, computers now, uh, you know, Wikipedia, YouTube, whatever you're searching through there telepathy. Right. <laughs> Telepathy. Take this unbelievably visionary in the West considered hallucinogenic beverage mm -hmm. and start getting really focused. And not like a meditation where you're wondering if you're doing it, but put you in a life or death situation where in the visions you have to, to make it out the other side. And then have the masters come in, mind meld you, full telepathy, and start guiding and directing you in the visions themselves. And then they call that training, and during the day, they don't want to really lecture. They want to hang out, go right. fishing, you know, smoke some jungle tobacco, tell some dirty jokes, laugh, have a good old time. And then at night, go back in and uh, get deep into the plants one more time. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so for the, the people who've had experiences like that, you know, either with ayahuasca or with other visionary substances – when you're training in the Amazon, you're looking at 100 to 150 ceremonies a year. Yeah. So you're in all the time, plus dietas where you're drinking other kinds of visionary right. plants. So you basically just put it in your imagination that we're talking about being in a transcendental state of consciousness for years on end. Wow. Yeah, it's that's very, intense. very serious. That's what I'm saying. Like once, just a concept of education, that's how they teach. They teach through direct experience where they're guiding and directing you to your own realizations, not telling you information, expecting you to memorize it and regurgitate sure, it. Sure, of course. But I mean, I guess it's interesting because you had the willpower and determination. You know, you did go to the Amazon to check it out, 
but then when you the first door was closed and he's like sorry too old bye you know see you gringo go back home you actually did stick around for a year plus before that happened you were able to kind of you know there's something going on there that typically when that door is not open a lot of people would turn around and go home and there was something there going on that kept you for quite a while after you got your first no sure yeah and and that was really just an opportunity to live there mm-hmm. it was a adventure and i was in my early 20s and i wanted adventure sure. i wanted to have that deep experience of being connected to something so foreign that i could start to wrap my head around myself and my mm-hmm. own existence let alone what i was doing i was not cut out at that moment for a nine to five job although i'm not sure i've ever been cut out for a yeah. nine to five job <laughs> i don't think any of us are <laughs> right. you know what i mean like it wasn't that wasn't in the in the the you know plan so yeah. i wanted to be out there and i thought it was a you know a kick in the pants and once i got accepted to live within the community which was you know its own process then i was the only foreigner for days just right. days and um living in the in the wilderness in a subsistence way was such a new education for me i wanted to learn everything i needed to learn how to walk again i needed to learn how to canoe i needed to learn how to mm-hmm. fish hunt survive subsist and when i say that there's no shops out there. Yep. there there's you're subsisting on the edge of what we would know of as civilization mm-hmm. and walking beyond that edge every day right like the backyard was literally the the line there are no fences or anything yep. it's just just a, a, a tiny little river 30, 40 meters wide that you're on and, and forest. And so, and how happy were the people? How happy were the people? Um, the people were, were, uh, I would say in general, incredibly happy by the standards of what we would think. Sure. But to understand that, that the idea of the noble savage and the great, you know, happy life isn't exactly how they live either, because there's a, a lot of, um, factors around survival that are really intense so illness is really intense sure sure and um when there's the need of western medicine you know to address a tumor or address you know like a compound fracture or something like that it's much more difficult for them to get that kind of assistance of course there's no medevac out there right and um and so there are other kinds of social pressures that they experience but in general just you know, put it in your imagination. They did not have language for depression, anxiety, stress, or a a uh, kind of like trauma, like deep wound that you carry for a long time in your life. Those were not concepts that they understood until I started to have to describe to them why people were coming to us from the West. So, you know, obviously they're not in the same headspace if they don't even use those terms. So mm-hmm. I, when I describe it to people... There, they would say, like, do you mean that they just have a bad day? Like, is that a bad day? Like, you just don't feel well? And I'm like, well, it's like a bad day for 15 years. And they did not have any idea what I was talking about. And they looked at me and they just said, like, like, oh, those, those foreigners, they're crazy. <laughs> they're not like, they're not, they're not sound anymore, you know? And that was like a common concept was that even though they lived in, you know, relative abject poverty by our standards, although, when you have land that provides you food, shelter, and medicine, it's hard to question your poverty instead of mortgages and traffic, you know, traffic and bills and antidepressants. Now it's amazing the shackles we've laid upon ourselves, is it not? Oh, just, just you must just look. You must look at the West like it's crazy now. I definitely have my my own uh, you know experiences of bewilderment when I look at at what 
people have created. Because I hear all these people talk about the world all the time. And it's like the world, the world, the world. I'm going, no, that's not the world. The world's Mother Earth. The world is the great rock and water floating in infinite outer space right now while we talk. Our heads nodding, our pieces of universe nodding. The words are sounds of universe. The electricity creating the thoughts in my brain is of the universe. The bodies of the universe, but not in the Western world it isn't. Right. No, no. I mean, like, just deny raw physics, deny, you know, all of our own scientific understanding, create a complete mindset independent of any of those findings, and then live a day talking about the findings that we have in science is odd to me that's just really odd like yeah. deny the fact that we live our physics but not really relate to the fact but then insist we study them no I'm not we, sure. we, we live slaves to the time clock and completely you know like it's the only way it could ever possibly roll you know yeah and it's terrifying that it's so locked in i do believe like the western civilization the mindset is nothing could ever be any different are you crazy we've we've mastered right. this and it only gets better and it's insane i mean down in in the jungle do you truly feel that the life is the universe experiencing itself and that's sort of first of all let's just start with the first half of that phrase and when i lived in the amazon i felt life that was huge to actually feel life, yeah. like feel the flow of a day, have a true flow without my brain breaking up time into 10 minute, one minute, five minute, two hour segments, planning future, planning past, like like just the brain going, da, 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 da. I call it ticky talk time, like where the, where the brain and time have decided to fragment everything, even though it's one consistent flow, you know, and then then you get into the, the you know, the, the part about sort of the universe experiencing life through you, I think the universe can only experience life through you when you give the universe the opportunity. But when you're like, hey, grant, you know, great universal umpire, get the hell out of here. This is my egoic life. This is my time. This is my body. This is my brain. These are my experiences. This is my past. These are my ideologies. These are my beliefs. No, the universe isn't experiencing anything through you. The universe experiences through you and people have that experience. That's a very mystical, like, you know, very awakened concept when when you're in such a state of fluidity and balance with the entirety of what we know of as life. These these mental constructs that create this vast separation between everything starts to dissolve and it starts to look like one great expression, which if you looked, if you could take like a truly omniscient point of view to the universe, which is impossible because mm -hmm. everything's contained within it. But if you could, you would see that the universe is one, just one. There's got to be a one. There's got to be a great container if there's a container, which we know there is because we're sitting inside a room and we know that there's an outside. And so we know that there's already a, a notion of an inside and an outside. And we know the great universe is all around this earth. You know, and so I think in, until you can hold a space where you are stable and understanding of really the scale, but also the vastness and also the finiteness of Earth in terms of that great universe, then all of a sudden those, those cognitive separations dissolve in the universe and you start to have a, a dance together that becomes flow and... In, in my case, I feel, and for everybody else that, that experiences life that way, that the universe is a, a active, participating, guiding, directing influence. You know, that is not chance. It's not chaos. It's not happenstance. It's literally a, a, a 
linear and not so linear flow through experience, you know, that's being disrupted by the cognitive process, by the brain itself. And I guess that's right there. Um, since we're going in a very, you know, nature of the universe direction, I'm curious because so much of what you have experienced, that's the key word right there, it's experience. It's not about beliefs, it's about what you actually go through and experience on your own skin. Like things like concepts like death, what do they mean in your experience? Things like death. I mean, I think that death in the simplest form is an ending. Period. It's an ending. The death of a moment, the death of a relationship, the death of a mm -hmm. genre, the death of an era, the death of, of a period of time of your own life, the transition from one age to the next age to the next age is the death of one year and the beginning of the next, the letting go of the old. And human death, this idea of mm -hmm. like, I'm alive and I'm going to die someday. Sure. I look at that as a uh, conceptual end cap on a linear construct of life. So say you got the, you know, the, the 80 year journey, sure. right? You can track back to an origin point called conception. Mm -hmm. You can track it back. I mean, I think that it's pretty, pretty much agreeable now that babies are made via conception. I think we're, uh, we're, we're there. Yeah. We're okay. Good. So then, then the, the three of us, you know, were made via conception and then, we now have lived life up until now mm -hmm. and we've witnessed death and we've experienced it in others, but it's not something that we've experienced in the grand totality. Sure. And I personally have had on many, many near death experiences, some of them visionarily and, and uh, plant based and others that were illness based mm -hmm. and injury based. And um, I, I consider those near life experiences because you don't die. Hmm. You get really close. You know, I mean, I got within like sure. a couple hundred yards of the end of the tunnel of white light. Right. But I ended up back in body. So if yeah. that's the case, then I didn't exactly die. Of course. You know, and so I think that that to uh, to make time. And this is my own theory, but to make time finite and for us to believe in a 24 hour day and for us to believe in minute increments of an hour and second increments of a minute you got to have a concept of death for the end of this trajectory because we don't have a vision truly of beyond sure. it. Now, I mean, people have hypothesized, theorized, yeah. and believed forever what happens beyond that concept. But we don't have an actual, like, empirical, scientific No, in fact, that's why I'm asking about experience in a different direction because clearly what you are, you know, the standard scientific model ends with what can be touched and observed right here, right now. Uh, what you're talking about, you know, even just from the get-go, you know, visions of spirits who tell you what, you know, this is something that would not be recognized under that model. Yeah, at all. And so what is the... Emphasis on model, though. Yeah, absolutely. Emphasis on model. It is because... a model. And that's why I'm curious about, you know, what's the perspective through your experiences, through what you have seen and heard of, had you gone the 200 yards more through to the end of that this physical body? In what do you believe would have happened at that point? I don't know. I think that, you know, you, you have to look at how you define first your own being before you define what right. happens at death. And no matter how we look at it, there's a direct connection to the physical, but there's also a direct connection to the non-physical. And if you really apply your science to your body, you know that, you know, you're a coalescence of matter in the form of energy and light. Well, right there, you have to ask yourself, 
wow and what what's going to happen with that and i th- i don't think anything happens with that i think that um you know in in the simplest form i think a human being as we know a human being is a collection of of really vast and wide perceptions happening all the time and that i i call that consciousness and to me the consciousness of an individual is the final rooted uh self-awareness it's got nothing to do with anything else. You right. can lose everything else. I mean, I've watched now thousands of people go through processes to disengage from every story of life, and they still exist. Go into the yeah. deepest visionary experiences, yet they still exist. Go into the you know, deepest death experiences and beyond and come back, and they still exist. Yeah. And so I think that commonality of true coalescence of awareness of 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 kind of like oneness, like your own oneness is consistent. And I don't see any reason why that has an end. So in that sense, the an idea of a sense of self does not end with the physical body. And I guess that would also be if there is a, if there are spirits that talk to you and they have an individual personality and this spirit is different from the next, that in itself, there is a concept of self. Sure. But I think you always have to... Of- yeah, you always have to look at it, though, from the perspective that you're the one having the experience and you're still in the game. And I mm-hmm. call the game life itself. You're still in body while you're having that experience. Right. And so what I see is that if you looked at it from a perspective of, say, like you disembodied, mm-hmm. you would see that there's 7.3 billion people who have the capacity to connect with you and share the visionary capacities, self egoic construct capacities, emotional capacities, as well as a ton of animals, sure. as well as a ton of plants, and as well as other celestial beings and bodies. Like when, when you're no longer rooted to the finite connection of, of 3D, one body that's very tiny on Earth and Earth's very tiny in the universe, when you get freed from that, all of a sudden the scale becomes very different. And um, that's been proven over and over and over in different kinds of expansive and ecstatic experiences for people where... You know, the idea of 80 years seeming like a really long time or a short time is nothing in comparison to 20 billion years. And, um, you know, geography, you think like, you know, five time zones is a a big distance. But how about, you know, 20,000 light years? How about the distance between, you know, spiral galaxies? Mm -hmm. So it's all relative. Of course. It's all relative. But I think the key element that I would say is that I do not have any evidence at all that the end of life is the end. Right. And I I flatly do not think that that's the case. I think that uh, the universe is very mysterious and it's whole. And it certainly seems like once things get created in the universe, they've been created as part of a a system that is truly eternal and infinite. Well, and I mean, I guess in in a shamanic experience, you're actually interacting with beings that do not possess a physical body in the way that we would recognize as possessing a physical body. That right there is telling you that there's a little more to the game than what can be observed in 3D. Yeah, but I mean, you can't observe radio waves in 3D. Sure, exactly, exactly. (laughs) No, exactly, that's what I mean. Yeah, and and I think that, um, you know, for the gift that the eyes are, you know, and and for the gift of being able to truly see with mm-hmm. them, and then the gift of mathematics and science to let us expand beyond our five senses to having a much greater awareness and understanding, is, I think, I think, a a support for what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's like saying, you know, if if human beings have been around, you know, actively engaged in in what we think of as Western science for a couple thousand years, give or take. 
And there's an archaeological record for human beings being alive for more than 200,000 years. And then you think of the idea of human beings possibly being around for another 20, 30, 40 million years. Mm -hmm. You know, where would the species be at that point and what would we know? And so I think this idea of having to maintain this unbelievably concrete and compressed tiny little box of understanding is very limited. Sure. When, when I don't know, 2,000 years ago, no one would believe anything that's happening on the planet today. And they'd say, oh, no, no, there could never be an internet. There could never yeah. be this podcast. There could never be, you know, satellites, no, communication satellites. And we're going to burn you for thinking of those. Yeah. Well, I've, you know... <laughs> You know, now, the, now the sun will, and you'll just uh, you know, totally. go down that way. The, I guess it was interesting when you were saying about the sort of a romanticized version that people sometimes have of indigenous culture, and your experience clearly was not like that. Because, I mean, I remember hearing you talk about how within the world that you live through, the within, you know, not only Peru, the jungle, but even just the shamanic context, is not just a word of uh, happy master Yoda who waits for, oh, dear brother, you have come, let me show you the way. There's also a lot of, like, power play between different shamans who are regularly fucking with each other and just regularly trying to do things that, you know, they, just because you have power, doesn't mean that you are an enlightened, meditating monk up the mountain who's about peace and love. Uh, you have power. And that is by the same token, some of the stuff that you had described and that you talk about, there's clearly this is not a purely romantic, noble, savage vision of it all. First, and let's just look at people. Mm -hmm. Okay, give me give me a history, any time in history where it's been peace and love. Exactly, that's what I mean. Exactly, like <laughs> you know, just like where, where, when. But I think that's exactly what happens: is yeah. that when people relate to a culture completely unlike their own. They either project their fears that come out as racist stereotypes or they project their hopes and dreams. And then it's like, oh, you're not like us. That means you must be amazing, peace and love, enlightened and can talk to the furry animal of the forest and you hug everybody. And you are. And it's like people are people, as you're saying. It's like nobody is the evil incarnate that the racist stereotypes identify and nobody is that perfect piece, or at least not nobody. Maybe an individual can be, but, yeah, not, but not, a, not a culture, exactly. Yeah, and I, I don't think there's any reason to think it even should be like that. Right. You know, in the Amazon, what I found really fascinating on that regard was that they did not have mental institutions, mm -hmm. and the tribes didn't kick anybody out. Mm -hmm. So there's no reason to think that they're not going to have the same expressions of, you know, kind of psychosis that ends up in certain individuals that's just hard to explain like why they're a sociopath or why they're a psychopath sure. and what i realized was that in that culture there's no way to differentiate yourself there's no economic way to differentiate yourself there's no uh title-based job-based way or educational-based way to differentiate yourself and so the only place you can is in the psychomagical realms right which everybody believes in and so there a very distinct hierarchy gets formed of Who's the Darth Vader character and who's the Obi-Wan character and yep. who are the young up-and-coming characters? And it's all based on typical uh, lineages and bloodlines and grandfathers passing it on to fathers who pass it on to children, all the knowledge and understanding. And so there are ones that are more benevolent in their nature and there are ones that are more competition-oriented in their nature. And then the other thing, too, to realize is... Tell me a culture that doesn't love a good competition. Right. <laughs> that doesn't love a good athletic yeah. endeavor, you know, that isn't ready for that Super Bowl game. The two facing off, the helmets clashing and colliding. And, 
You know, and it, it's so the same thing goes down there. Like they love to figure out who's who and who has a little bit more strength and who doesn't. And but rather know. than climbing into a ring, you have two guys who meet in spirit space with their spirit allies to see who can come up on top. Sure, and it's and it's literally defining a ring. It's defining right. the octagon. Only yeah. their octagon looks a lot more like a an online you know video game than right. it looks like. A, an individual just you know like very contained experience but that was something in those those realms that became very interesting to mm -hmm. me because i realized that there were practitioners out there that knew how to engage on multiple planes at the same time and so it's it's you know it, it's it's like fighting 50 mma fights simultaneously with 50 different set of rules because the rules are defined by the visionary space that mm -hmm. the battle's taking place in so you could be in astral visions as well as like underwater visions as well as, you know, like earth-based visions. So basically if you took like every single awesome chase scene, fight scene from all the Bond movies of history and made them all happen at once and know that you're in the middle of that orchestrating all of it and it really is life or death. It's, you know, it gets very exciting. Because there are no referees. I mean, the whole right. thing that you have to really understand there is that are there are no rules. No rules. <laughs> there are no rules to it. Right. You know, the the, the guys in the deep in the forest, they're not interested in uh, in you know coming to a, a location where there are rules. Yeah, of course. Right. They live in a place so remote that even though the the laws of the country are still there, they're kind of irrelevant to yep. the nature of the daily lives of the people. And so uh, a different kind of social stratification takes place, which I call law of the shotgun or law of the machete, which is that when you know that everybody's armed, behavior is actually quite congenial. Yeah. Right? Because unilaterally expressed, like, you know, no one's doing road rage out on a river where there's just two or three guys and a bunch of shotguns, you know, and, yep. and you're passing each other. And especially in my case, being like, Normally about, you know, one and a half times their height right. and, you know, really, really fair skinned in comparison. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, it's, there's, a, there's a lot of really, really respectful behavior. Yeah, because things can escalate. Escalate really, really, really quickly. Yeah, sure. Of course. Yeah. And I was, I was scared of that at first. I mean, I really was scared of, of you know, being killed. I can see why. You know, but the funny part was the guys I was scared of came to me and told me that they were scared of a whole nother group of guys. Like, oh, dude, you got to watch out for those guys. Those guys could kill you, you know? And I'm like, wait, no, no, I'm scared that you guys yeah. are the ones that might be the ones to do that. That's reassuring. That's yeah. always. And so then I realized that, again, you have your hierarchies. Yeah, and, of course. And so, you know, it's not for the faint of heart, I would say that. You're getting deep into it. Uh, you know, I got deep into a tribal society, and I got to live within that, and I feel incredibly blessed that that was, that was my life. But it was, you know, intense the whole time. That's why I guess it's like that's a good note of warning in terms of, uh, you know, having some romantic notion of, oh, I'm going to fly to the jungle, shake the hands of my brothers of the forest who are going to teach me the way of the force and everything no. is going to go okay. No, it doesn't work that's, like that. Yeah, exactly. That seems a little no, on the... Yeah, it doesn't work like that at all, uh, really. Uh, 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 the uh. fellas that you say leave deep in the forest, would they come out on occasion as your training went along? Would you, were, you, were other things unveiled to you as you became more knowledgeable? Yeah, I, for sure, for sure. Um, the unveiling takes place all the time. When you learn there, they never use the term to learn. It's always they use the verb to discover. So it's like, oh, you discovered that. Whenever you tell anybody like what you've been learning, you're like, oh, oh, you discovered that. You discovered that. And then 
um, the ones who are training you are unveiling it at the speed at which you can digest it and integrate it, you know, to integrate the, the transformation and the knowledge. Because interesting, in the, in the Amazon, the shamanic arts are considered a transformative art, not a learned art. So you have to become the thing, not gain the title of the thing. So it's not that you stay the same and you learn a bunch of stuff like I'm, I don't know, you know, Chris, the guy in medical school, who's still Chris, the guy who graduated from medical school. When you graduate as a master shaman, as a being, as a person, you look nothing like what you started. Like nothing. Like they transform literally your consciousness. You you go in with, you know, consciousness 1.0 and you come out with master shaman consciousness 2.0. Nice. Yeah. It's almost like you've been converted yeah, like like you uh you or, took or a is car it more and, you become and, uh, more used to your new enlightenment? No, is it's, it more it's that? no, it's more like you uh you take a a car that you hope has the capacity to be able to be, you know, souped up and customized. And then you go spend a lot of time on the in the customization shop and then you come out with, you know, a whole new detail, you got you got a whole new whole new outlook of everything. Like you got a whole new engine, you got a whole new transmission, you have a you know, a whole new way of functioning and using your brain that was never available before. And simply simply put that everything that you went in doubting, you no longer doubt because you have experiential evidence for or against. And so, you know, as your your life continues to change, I think you could maybe make it akin to, to somebody who's lived through multiple, multiple decades of life. Like it was in their 60s or 70s or 80s, who's like, really looks back and goes like, wow, when I was in my 20s, I was like that. And I'm really yeah, different now. Like course. life has transformed yeah. me. Like, you know, the the kind of um, metamorphosis. Yeah, the metamorphosis. But but like the, the naivetes mm -hmm. drop away as you get older and older. And the fantasies that you live through that turn out either better or worse than the way you fantasize them unveils a lot more about life. What the shamans are trying to do is create over a, a short period of time but long period of time, say like somewhere between uh, four to seven years, they're trying to compress an entirety of life experience into those four or seven years. That would be compared to like a what you'd think of as a normal person's lifespan so that you've touched upon in your own experience all of the themes so that you could relate to the elder and to the, the baby mm -hmm. at the same time. You could have... The mother coming in for, uh, you know, in her 30s for a problem and then she could bring, bring in her three-month-old baby and you would have to be able to relate to both the issues that both of them have. That makes sense. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I would say quite an intense process because, I mean, yeah, you do have that element of continuity because when you look, even like, as you say, just long life, you have people who look back 30 years and be like, you can see some continuity with who you are today. But you also see that you are another person and there's that both are true at the same time. You are both, you are, there's something that survived and there's something else. So much of it that has been, I guess the car metaphor is good because you can change just about every part of the car. And in some weird odd way, it's the same car, but in some other way, it really isn't. It's yeah. Like it's become something else. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I always looked at it that there's one thing that is consistent within a human being from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. And that is the human being. Right. Like the core essence, the essential, like subtle, but consistent and always there. Well, it's the one that says yes when, when you know, questioned. It's yeah. the one called the one that turns around. Yeah. It's, 
that is consistent. And then the rest of it becomes, you know, oddly moldable like clay, but a kind of medium where it takes significant effort to make those changes. It's mm -hmm. not like, oh, I'll change my point of view. I read a self-help book and, right. you know, now I've, I've decided to be more honorable or I've decided to now be yeah. honest. It's not, it's not like that. Those are like the, 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 the tiniest little crumbs of Hansel and Gretel finally taking you you know, into the, the true customization shop at some point. And you have to think, too, to yourself that, like, if you want to go through this and have this kind of experience, that it is a true life commitment. Like, you're yeah. putting everything on the line. Yeah, no, you're not messing around with 150 ceremony a year for multiple years doing that's everything. You know? Yeah, that's yeah. What now? You know, you're clearly, you have done a path for a while. You have been in the Amazon first uh, as an apprentice, then as a master shaman, then doing all of that. Now you've been back in the States for a while. Uh, what's the, what's coming up next? In the Amazon, I was trained as a master shaman. Like that was my role and I was a healer. And um, as I studied more and more the healing arts, I came to realize that the healing arts ended and began in consciousness. And that consciousness was really the exploration and that consciousness was something that would affect the entirety of the earth, not in the entire human species mm -hmm. of Homo sapiens sapien. And, you know, shamanism was such a, a limited thing. And so I, I realized after all that time and especially coming back with now this, you know, new understanding and realizations that I was much more of a humanitarian than I ever really realized. And um, I got really interested in consciousness as the medium through which to explore different kinds of difficulties that people face here. And, you know, throughout the years in the Amazon, I, we became really renowned and I became, you know, relatively famous for healing mental illnesses that were considered incurable by Western medicine. Mm -hmm. So I have it, had extensive practice and success healing PTSD, anxiety, depression, addiction. And so when I looked at the world and I saw the scope of the global mental health crisis, and to me, it really is a crisis where you're looking at over a billion people that are affected directly. Yep. And then, you know, literally everybody I know knows somebody who's had a, a mental health crisis, has had one themselves or experiences on a regular basis. And I looked at that. I said, OK, that's the entire human population. And when I looked at the entire human population, I said, the Western world is a brain dominant group of people like it's mm -hmm. all about the education of the brain and mental illness is all about the brain it's sure. not about the mind it's right. about the brain and the brain's functioning its cognitive functioning i realized that that you know if we were going to have any true positive impact in any kind of humanitarian way that we would need to focus on the mental health crisis and so i formed a charity called the blue morpho foundation and the blue morpho foundation is dedicated to finding cures with the help of Western medicine, allopathic medicine. So we're we're bonding with science. We're bridging that gap that has existed for many, many years. And my center in Peru helped with that tremendously because we had lots of, you know, MDs and PhDs coming down, research scientists, social scientists, and uh, full-fledged physicians mm -hmm. looking for answers beyond their own field. And so I started to talk with them and say, you know, are you guys interested in, in looking at mental illness from the perspective of consciousness you know not just not just psychology but sure. a much more holistic look at the entirety of all behavioral science and the response was incredibly favorable and so the blue morpho foundation is dedicated to finding cures for ptsd anxiety depression and addiction we're starting with the initiative for ptsd 
And PTSD is a, a, you know, on its own, a global epidemic. Mm-hmm. We do not have an answer for trauma, yet life seems to have an answer for dishing it. <laughs> yeah. Life dishes trauma on like just the, just the buffet yep. table of trauma of kinds and ways and <laughs> experiences and um and so I thought let's start with PTSD. We have all all the servicemen and women that are coming back from different combat experiences, operations, war, and the effect has been dramatic. It's it's dramatic, and the number of uh, you know veteran suicide is astonishingly horrific it's sad it's brutal and i want to do something about it it's really simple um you know i, w- I want to prove to the world that cures are actually possible it's not just mm-hmm. treatment it's not forever treatment it's not that you're stamped and labeled screwed up forever but still honor the fact that people have had these experiences it's not some laissez-faire no. exploration it's but it's also an understanding that you don't have to be held down forever. If you've been put in hell because of these experiences, your own personal internal hell, there is liberation Mm -hmm. right back into this life. And I couldn't, I couldn't reach enough people from the Amazon. It's really simple. Like, you know, there we were able to work with 300, 400 people a, a year. And I, I didn't feel like we could do enough. You know, I was, I was so glad that we could help in the ways that we could, but I thought this has to be bigger. And I thought the only way we can do that is to partner. This needs to be a, a global mission, you know, and so the calling's there, and I'm putting out the call to everybody who wants to be a part of it, to who who has the capacity to volunteer or be a special benefactor for the foundation, and to understand that to that someday we're going to be leaving this planet, and when we do, we want to know that that people are healthy in their brains, that the species will have a continuance going forward, that there truly will be something there for the grandchildren and great grandchildren and great 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 grandchildren, because if we don't fix the mental health crisis, we're looking at a tremendous problem down the road. It is exponentially growing. You have the issue of nature versus nurture. You have now, you know, billions of children, billions mm-hmm. of children living with parents who have mental health problems. Right. So those children are getting modeled every single day, that behavior. Those children do not know a world independent of that they don't have a comparative contrasting brain at two three four five understanding why daddy and mommy are freaking out every day you know substance abusing and you know possibly expressing different kinds of abuse or violence themselves like so I, i i just think that this is such an important mission it's so so important as a species and i i always think it's really funny that it doesn't get the press that other kinds of like more fantastical, really scary diseases, like something that would make you bleed out of your orifice, gets sure. this tremendous, you know, push. Oh no, there's this disease out there. How about the disease that's causing everybody to kill themselves? Yeah. Yep. Right? It, it, it's not even a third party issue anymore. Like, this is significant. And so the Blue Morpho Foundation, we're dedicated to finding these cures. And, uh, you know, like I said, we're partnering with uh, psychologists and psychiatrists to make that possible. And we want to get the the cures and the treatments that we're developing first tested and proved that cure can be possible. And we're in the process of that. And um, so we're we're starting, we're launching the, the foundation and this PTSD initiative. And in doing so, we have a, a free global address that I'm giving around everything associated to mental health and and the needs for mental health the keys to mental health 
And so I invite everybody to participate in that. You can sign up for free through curepTSDnow.org. And we also have a 21-day challenge that we're starting, which is a feel-good challenge. It's a change-your-mood challenge. And so what I wanted to prove with that is that in 21 days, you can radically change how you experience your own mental and emotional well-being mm -hmm. in just 21 days. And so it's a series of daily activities that I've hand-selected and created that walk you through a process of becoming more mindful of your environment and more connected to the real essence of your own life experience and the way that that connection can start to simply awaken a much better emotional state because we get stuck in these rooted patterns that we don't think we can break out of. And I want to show people that you can not only break out of it, but you can break out of it and continue this you know, transformative experience in something that's really, really fun. How do somebody wants to do that, want to take you up on the challenge? How do they do it? All you have to do is go to our website at bluemorphofoundation.org and right on the homepage you can sign up. It's just put in your email, you yep. put in your name and email and you get uh, brought right into it. It's a daily email that you get that breaks it down and breaks down the activity and the activities are done during the day. So mm -hmm. an example of one is uh, to be mindful of every sensation and flavor while you eat a meal. Sure. You know, because often our brains are going wild when oh, yeah. we eat and then we don't even know the mindfulness around eating. And so it's it's really simple. It's just have a meal and choose the one that you're when you're going to eat that you're going to pay really attention to the food. Right. You know, and then the next day is an is an activity to, you know, connect with the the heart. The next one is an activity to connect to walking and what you actually experience when you walk. And so just showing that through very basic mindfulness, but mm -hmm. in, you know, a specific order can create a dramatic emotional shift. And so I welcome everybody to take this challenge. You'll feel better. Even if you're not suffering, you'll feel so much better from doing this. So, you know, join me in it and, and uh, participate. It's, it's incredible. Awesome. That sounds like a hell of a challenge right there. I would yeah. say you get, and I challenge in a good way because you got nothing to lose and you only have to gain. So nothing that's to lose. not a bad challenge. And that's part of our philosophy too, is that this is a progressive shift into a more positive way of experiencing your own life and helping others at the same mm -hmm. time. And so often when we participate in charities and trying to do good, we sacrifice something in exchange for that. Yep. It's like our own sacrifice. It doesn't have to be that way. Charity can be benefiting your own life and your own experience while you benefit the lives of millions of others at exactly the same time. Yes. Why would you diminish your own life experience to benefit the life experience of others? What we want to see is an increase in beneficial life experience for everybody, not just the ones that are perceived in need. But that that right there is the vision of where it can be all around good and it's not just, oh, I have the powers, but I'm also in a crazy power competition with the next dude. And, you know, that kind of worldview where there's these sort of shades of really dark sides and really cool sides mixed together. What you're pushing for is a world in which there's no need for the heavy, darker, competitive, weird energy attached to it. Yeah, what I see with that is simply the human population has been in that paradigm for tens of thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Tens of thousands of years, we have been in a paradigm of might is right and greater conflict, greater conflict, greater conflict. At 7.3 billion people, we can sustain it. At 8 billion people, we're going to see. At 9 billion people, I doubt it. And at 10 billion people, I know for a fact it will not be sustainable. We're going to have to move beyond a competition-based expression over resource and to recognize that the true resource 
is healthy humanity. Right. When we it's 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 not a revolution. It's it's a recognition that in the evolutionary process of humanity, as the population gets so much larger and resources become scarcer, that we're going to have to find a way to share the nature of resource. And then the one resource that's expanding is the human population. So yeah. when we when we really look at the expansion of that resource, as we see that healthy population, happy population, stable population, producing less crime, less issues, less problems, and greater production, connected to human ingenuity and development of technology, allows us an infinite growth potential, which based on the current political and economic models, allow for for a sustainability it doesn't require an a, a change a radical change in those regards like used you know used to be the paradigm of thought that there needs to be a revolution for change sure. i completely disagree now the, there's no longer a need i think as soon as the world became you know globally nuclear that concept ended in its entirety and um i mean to my own accord i'm a man of peace so i, I see it as as a, a a natural progression to recognize that if more people can be in the workforce and there can be more jobs and it, the jobs aren't over competition, but the jobs are about the expansion of humanity and about humanitarian efforts. I see this idea what of what I call philanthropic capitalism, which is a concept of capitalism being used to do positive things for humanity, that mm -hmm. that really be the driving force, Right. that you have an infinite growth potential and it doesn't require that darker, gnarlier side of, of competition. Yeah, which is really, it's funny, by the way, because before you went into all this stuff, what I wanted to ask you completely randomly that was not fitting with what we were saying earlier was your thoughts on the future of humanity. And you basically <laughs> answered it in the last <laughs> those are, seven minutes. Those, so are, those are my thoughts. Yeah. yeah. But uh, no, that's uh, so if I read you right, if uh, with a shift in consciousness, with the transformation in priorities, with combined with human ingenuity, all of that, then that would allow also, hopefully, to figure out ways to tap into resources in a different way so that the balance between overpopulation versus dwindling resources wouldn't look so dire because our ability to tap into those resources would also make it in such a way that they are not so dwindling anymore. The same exact resources that exist today, the way we harvest them today, harvested in a different way, they wouldn't be so little and it actually could be something where it becomes sustainable. Yeah, I think that there's no reason to think otherwise. Mm -hmm. You you have a a planet that in in a lack of sustainability is still surviving. Right. You have a human population. It's the human population that is the question, not right. the earth. Sure, it doesn't it's, care at all. Yeah. yeah, it's the human population, and so it's like you know, when are we going to get cooperative? Yep. Period. Like, yep. just ask that question, and the day that the answer is yes is the day that what we call the global crisis is going to end. Right. That'll be the day that everybody would know in human history. Say, like, 100 million years from now, that was the day when the young Homo sapien population came forth and made the decisions to dramatically change the, the nature of how we experienced our daily lives so that there could be a, a long-term future. And the way you see it is that you believe this to be a very realistic approach. I mean, if, if I read you right, like you are sort of the jury still out, but that's a very realistic possibility. And that's where you're going to put your work toward to make, to tilt the balance more in that direction rather than the uglier alternatives. I think that, you know, there's nothing else to do. Right. You know, I, I just have a very simple philosophy that 
someday this body and the the matter and 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 molecules and atoms that make up this body that are constantly changing as mm-hmm. i eat and 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 uh cells grow and die and all of that is all going to be left behind mm-hmm. right that part i'm very clear on i'm not saying like you're going to live to sure. 700 on of earth course. you know yep. at, at at least at the current rate of technology sure. add nanotechnology and add a whole you know explosion in western medicine maybe you have a different you know outlook but currently at the rate where we're going i look at it, i think like well knowing that what am i going to do mm-hmm. right why am i alive mm-hmm. why why do i have this life what what am i doing with my time and sure. you know i suffer from a, a simple condition that life gets darker the boredom sets in the worse it gets the you know worse i feel experience i don't mm-hmm. think it works that way like i think when you're engaged and when you feel good about what you're doing and you're fired up about your your direction and you know you look at your future and it it looks brighter yep. then life inherently looks better of and course. that's the life i want to live and of so course. you know I, I look at it from that philosophy if i'm going to have to you know live this life and and let everything go then what i want to leave behind is a better world mm-hmm. not you know a, a huge amount of accumulation yeah I want to. I want to leave behind just really a better world. That's like where my heart sings. Yep. And so, when I look at the world and I, I see where we are today, I don't see any reason, any reason to project deep into the future how this is all going to look. Mm-hmm. I look at human history from a very rational point of view, and I see that there are massive changes just sporadically tossed throughout history. Endless civilizations that have come and gone, many of them no longer within the nature of the conversation because they're not a tourist attraction. Sure. (laughs) Or they're under cities that are Mm -hmm. currently metropolises where, you know, the vast majority of the people living today don't even know the names of those huge at that time civilizations. Of course. And And the ones covered in jungle. And the ones covered in jungle. And so I look at all of that and I think, okay, what are we really doing? What are we really talking about? Okay. Technology is changing at a rate we've never seen before, right? Economies are changing at a rate we've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Advancement in technology is changing at a rate we've never seen before. Information technology is changing at a rate we've never seen before. If all of that's happening right now, why would I project a doom and gloom story that the other key elements aren't also going to change yep. in suit? I mean, yep. right now people are fighting and bickering over the concept of what's going to happen sure not what's what's happening and mm-hmm. i go let's focus on what's happening let's focus on what we need to do right now today for tomorrow to be a better day for us and the greater collective and then mm-hmm. let's look at day after tomorrow what's going to be a better day again in that same kind of con- concept and then let's cast our projection deep into the future let's let's say let's look at it in 15 generations 30 generations Right. Let's think that the generations that are are coming into you know existence now and are growing up now, they're growing up in a tablet based, smartphone based world from day one. Yep. And what's going on inside their heads is completely different to anything that you know you would think of in terms of childhood if that didn't exist during the time that you were a child. Of course. And so I think, like you know, of those of those people of those children, they look at the world in a very different way. They're looking. Certainly. Most of them, when I talk to to younger people, they're looking for solutions, not mm-hmm. blame. They're they're in a different mindset, and I think that that's something that we can really, really uh, 
you know, count on is that that human ingenuity capacity is there. I love the optimistic approach because there are so many people who look at the same stuff and view it in, because, uh, you know, in everything you're going to find sort of the cool transformation and uh, there's always that half glass of empty, half full, and there are so many people who focus on the technology, dehumanizing, doing this and that, doing, you know, all of that kind of stuff in such a way that... Uh, and instead, you're putting the accent on the... It's interesting, too, because when I think about some of the people I know, like somebody like Chris Ryan, who's very intrigued and attached to mm, the good stuff from the past, indigenous cultures and uh, older model of making a living, That's and he view it as an excellent thing, as something that got them lost. Then you got these people, other people that we are friends with or something like the Duncan Trussell, Joe Rogan, who have very much a futuristic approach of like, the future is going to be amazing. A little less uh, intrigued with what Chris Ryan is into, but is more about technology, technology, technology. This is going to transform everything in a cool way. You in some way kind of bridge both worlds in that regard because you do come from an experience of living in the freaking jungle in the middle of nowhere and at this and being attached to the culture not trying to remove yourself from the culture but at the same time also seeing technology not as an obstacle not as a deviation from uh, original purity that existed back then where you're kind of like combining in some way the the best of both worlds of the more traditional like you know if somebody dropped in the jungle 10,000 years ago it may have looked the same in some of the activities and at the same time the latest wave in where technology is heading tomorrow and you're straddling both worlds right there yeah but i think that if you look at earth Mm -hmm. you know earth lives in real time People don't, but mm-hmm. Earth does. People live in real time conceiving of other times, but everybody's right in the now, mm-hmm. right? This is as far as this shindig has gotten. Yep. Big bang until now is now. Mm-hmm. Big bang until five minutes in the future from now will be the exact same now. And so I look at this as an evolutionary process where this is as far as humanity has gotten. Right. Good, bad, right, wrong, one way or the other. It's one hodgepodge. It's one melting pot. And... For all of the different ways that the world's divided up between religions and politics and economics and culture and identifiable characteristics, I still look at it and I say it's one Earth. Mm-hmm. No matter who cuts it up, yeah. it's going to be one Earth. Yep. You know, and if people are on it, it's going to be one Earth. Mm-hmm. If you chop up the Earth into pieces, you're not going to have people on them anymore. Yeah. And so it lends to a straddled, optimistic concept right it's like the technology is there for a reason the Mm -hmm. wisdom that's still preserved within tribal societies is there for a reason the expansion and globalization is there for a reason and i think that the hardships that the planet and the population are facing right now are the catalyst and the impetus for people to think outside the box and to get really creative and so i look at that and i think well, that all adds up to something very interesting and exciting, and it doesn't really require that same doom and gloom concept I, for me. I yeah. mean, I don't, I don't see it that way. I don't fixate on the hardships, but again, I was trained as a person to problem solve the hardships, not mm-hmm. point fingers and blame at anything, and yep. you know, look for, look for those solutions. And I like it also because, as you say, what else is there to do? You know, doesn't matter whether you have a positive or a more difficult view about the future of humanity is. The game is still in play until the game is over. doesn't matter whether you think it's going to work out great or you don't. 
you still play the damn game, right? People are allowed endless, endless, endless opinions, and opinions are the easiest thing to generate, yeah. and they're one of the fastest things to imprison you. Yep, absolutely. You get your own opinion, you get all fired up about it, and your mind becomes myopic on that single concept, and you can't see outside of that box. And all of a sudden, you're Bill O'Reilly. Yeah. And so, and so I look at that, and I think, like, well, I want to steer clear of that as best I can. Love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, you uh, got to, creativity requires a free mind, and a free mind requires the freedom to cognate with your brain. And your brain has to be within a system that is, you know, balanced. And that includes the external part of your life. So if you're always fixated on the problem, you're never yeah. going to be finding solutions. Of course. And then the idea, even for the people who are like, oh, this is the solution. It's like the idea is a dime a dozen. There's already a billion people on the planet that have exactly the same idea. It's a question of who's going to step up and start to organize you know, expressions that can be embraced by the, the larger population. And I keep seeing these people that are, quote unquote, philanthropists and humanitarians. And the focus is the negativity. The focus is the problem. The focus is, is you know, the the... I don't know, the, the convolution of it all. And I, I think, no, we need to get beyond that too. We got to get to a point where we are all focused on the same general concept, which is well-being, mm -hmm. greater well-being, continuing to expand the greater well-being. Yeah. And then it becomes inevitable. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, you know, if you pedal a bike and the bike goes forward, you don't <laughs> question why you're pedaling the bike. Right. Like, let's get simply rational about all of this and start to actually do something, you know, mobilize in a, in a very organized way. And, you know, so many times there's all this conflict between the parties who are trying to do, quote unquote, good. Arguing about how are we going to do it? What should it's like? Just go for it. Let's worry about it. You know. Yeah. And yeah. and also drop the BS and and start to agree on on how to get it done. Like yep. come come to a common understanding of what we're actually trying to do. And speaking of getting to do then I would say for everybody, yeah, check out Blue Morpho Foundation. I will put the link in the episode notes to the website. Do you want to give it again, just in case, for people who maybe and are spell driving? it out? Because yeah. once you get a pH going, people get crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pHs are are, are pretty intense. So, uh, okay, the website is Blue Morpho Foundation. That's mm -hmm. B L U E M O R P H O Foundation. F O U N D A T I O N dot org. And then we have CurePTSDnow.org for the free global address. And uh, join us for that. It's going to be, you know, an incredible exploration of the mental health crisis and the solutions that we have and how we're going to, you know, start to mobilize and make that possible. And so I appreciate everybody's support and join us, participate. This is incredible. This is about bettering your own life and the lives of everybody at the same time. And I think we can all agree that that adds up to a better world. Yeah, indeed. I could not say it better. Anything else you want to throw out there or... I got one question I got to ask. Um, the people you stayed with in Peru, what's their creation myth like? Are the plants involved with it as well, or did that come later? Uh, the creation myths are incredibly detailed. And there's a whole pantheon of entities slash spirits slash mythological creatures that are all part of the entire creation story. And... Um, the idea that that humanity was seeded is is very clear amongst the people. They think that 
you know, humanity was seeded on the planet along with the plants. They they do now akin it to sort of divine experience, like a divine expression, some kind of divine creation um, that sometimes has a Christian slash Catholic undertone because or overtone because sure. of the influence of the church. Sure. But the piece that I found most amazing was that even without that, there's a uh, great similarity in in the description of the these beings and recognition of those very same beings in cultures from all over the world. It's the aliens. I knew it. It's yeah, I'm not going to go as far right. as aliens, but I'm definitely going to go as far as saying that that similarity is, is really, really quite incredible. So you hear of... Um, you know, like the Aztecs and the Mayans having these myths of these Caucasian looking deity types and then, you know, boats show up with Spaniards on them and, and Portuguese. And then they have this idea that those same kind of Caucasian looking light beings that are all sparkly and whatever and angelic in their nature show up and they're associated to the plants and some of the animals as well. So they're plugged in right into the very same uh you know, collective understanding is all of the other traditions from around the world. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Anything else? I just want to say uh, that doing good in the world is a great way to live. And if you if you want to feel good in the modern world, you need to get behind something that pumps you up and that gives you some exhilaration about being alive. Mm-hmm. And that the the foundation to overall mental health and well-being is living a life that you're engaged in, not just doing because you have to. Sure. And so finding that uh, a cause within you that isn't righteous, but a cause that whether it's your studies or whether it's your work or whether it's your family or whether it's a, a cause like mine with our charity, it doesn't really matter. But that is one of the main keys to to beginning to have a life that is sustainably positive in terms of your overall experience. I don't think it can get any better than this point. <laughs> so I would say it's an excellent one to live on. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Hamilton. Well, I'm not even going to mention the stuff that was recorded afterwards. Water demons. Oh, yeah. Spirits attacks. They got too spooky. Yeah, it got pretty interesting right there. He jumped up out of his chair. Yeah. Well, there you have it, folks. Spirits, crazy warriors fighting battles on the ethereal plane. Either makes you nervous or excited. Are you going to go have some ayahuasca later tonight? Uh, yeah, sure. Later tonight. That's exactly what you do as a... Uh, yeah, you just go. You just lunch. roll in. No, I, I precisely because I respect it. I think it needs to be done right if somebody's to do it. And there are a lot of ways to. So, you know, I don't know. We'll see the f what the future holds, whether I ever get around to it It's wildly or not. fascinating, it's, though. Yep, indeed. So let's take a couple of quick thank yous to some people. Well, one really quick thank you because uh, we are recording our intros and outros to the episodes way in advance of when they are released. So We haven't even heard about Pakistan nuking India yet. <laughs> right, that's how that's... far behind we are. Let the pottering begin. I want to thank Aaron McLaughlin, uh, the one uh, donor who managed to uh, get us some hard-earned cash, I would say. 
in very sweet fashion in, right before, uh, right after we uh, recorded the last uh, uh, outro. So that was a cool thing. Uh, there's probably a bunch of you guys who donated, or I hope there's a bunch of you guys who will donate between uh, over be summer. And, but we won't get to you until probably mid-August or something when we record a new episode. Might be the whole episode. In, so many names. Yeah, it's that would be Two sweet. hours of names. And then it's Monty with the 600 bucks. Way to go, Monty. Yeah, I would not be opposed to such a thing. Um, <laughs> hey, I'm starting a new Tom Robbins book. I'll have a report shortly. Skinny Legs and All is oh, next yeah. up. And... Uh, Every paragraph is genius. Tom is a god. How does he do it? Tom is a god. He spent about a day... If he writes a page a day, he's perfectly satisfied. Wow. He writes real slow, working on every sentence, crafting every word, being really, really methodical about it. Well, my real fear is being the dumb guy that uh, I miss half the references, and I'm sure I do. I think everybody misses at least half the references, because there are so many things there. But the ones that, you do get, you oh, feel like, they're, ooh. They're brilliant. I got you, Tom. I got you. Indeed. Yeah, we got a lot more, but I can't wait. Um, what else do we need to... Oh, uh, affiliates. Coracao Chocolate, Audible.com. If you use any of those, please check out our links because you got a discount and uh, we got a little kickback, which is sweet. Thank you to Desi House for providing some music. Uh, if you need our t-shirts, Drunken Taoist t-shirts, there's a whole lineup in the episode notes of three different ones that you can order. Similarly, if you want to check out the Davis Lecture Series, there's seven hours worth of stuff for your listening pleasure under 10 bucks. So lots of goodies out there. Um, and if you don't want goodies, drop 25 bucks to Kiva.org to help somebody else's life improve. You can help people in the U.S., all around the, con- all around the world. Kenya, Peru seem to be popular with me, but just keep blending, you guys. It's amazing what you're doing, and the money comes back to you anyway. So it's kind of a a no miss and with y'all out there toiling with your summer jobs right now you got a lot of extra flush cash going anyway you weren't going to buy those books this fall anyway so everybody wins if already it sounds like too far to uh to believe just be a drunken Taoist at this point (laughs) like fully and and go with it because once the real mystics of the forest got a hold of me and a hold of my brain and hold of my consciousness and psyche it was off to the races it was wild like And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as soon as they come out. You can keep track of Daniel at dbolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at Richimon1. That's R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N, the numeral one. See y'all soon. questo cazzo in questo caso le provvidenze di dio Duncan showed you the way eh? oh man isn't that scary to think nice so don't kill people do that instead <laughs>
This was great. Fucking awesome. And I love this conversation. Did you ever see the movie Tombstone with uh, Val Kilmer and... Uh, uh, your accent, it just... Whatever that movie is you were trying to tell me about... Can you translate for me, please? I believe the word was Tombstone. Yeah, that one, exactly. <laughs> just as I was saying, you know, Tombstone. <laughs> what do I have to do? One day the rod shall teach you. Get back to work.